Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we've got something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to do some talking today. I've got something that I've been working on. A little project, a little idea, and I don't know exactly what to do with it, so I thought I would share it with you, friends. Now, many of you might remember a podcast I did some 64 episodes ago, or whenever it was, in which uh, I was talking to my friend Wade, who asked, Luke, do you ever just like feel like doing like a rant, do like a monologue instead of interview? And I said, no, I don't. And the reason I said no is because I get plenty of opportunities to talk, like Every Sunday I get a talk. And so I don't feel like I need to talk more, which is part of the appeal of the interview. I get to ask other people questions. I get to learn from them instead of me doing all the talking. And so usually what I learn obviously gets worked into what I say, but uh, I don't feel like the need, I don't feel the need to do some talking. But today I got something that I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know if it's a sermon. I don't know what it's going to be. Um, but I think it's a little bit newsworthy, so uh, I'm going to do that. So I'm going to be doing some talking today all by myself, and I think we're going to call this one Life's a Beach. Life's a Beach. I like that. Little title. And I just told myself that I like something that I just came up with, so that's very fitting. All right, so uh, I'm going to do that in just one second. Um, okay, so I hear from people who know the, uh, the way the, the computers work that the old iTunes gives the newsworthy with news norsworthy more publicity if we have more reviews. So, if you would like to help promote the podcast and give us some love, one of the ways you can do that is you go on iTunes. I think you have to do this on a computer. I don't think you can do it on your phone. But go on iTunes, leave a review of the podcast, and yeah, it helps out iTunes will give us more love. More love from you means more love from the podcast to other people. So quite simple. Take a few seconds. Go do that on the old iTunes. Leave a review, and I would be forever grateful. And by forever, I mean just for a few minutes. But those would be very special few minutes that I'm grateful. All right. Um, Let's do this. Uh, You might notice some stories in here that remind you of things on the podcast. And, uh, and if you do, good for you, man, or gal. Thanks for paying attention to the podcast. Um, so here we go. Do you guys like stories? I like stories. Let me start this thing off by telling you a story. Imagine a guy. We can call him Pete. He lives on the beach. Not live on the beach like I've got a beachfront house, so when I wake up and open the tur- curtains, I see the ocean live on the beach. No, This Pete actually lives on the sand of a beach, the same sand he's lived on his entire life. Less like a movie star's Malibu beach house and more like the movie star Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. So no one has ever had to tell Pete about the danger of the water. But then again, no lessons were required on undertow or riptides. He didn't need the don't swim right after eating spiel, He didn't need to be told that shark attacks happen around dusk and dawn. No outside wisdom was required for Pete to develop a fear of the water. The sight of the wall of water slamming down, the sound of the crashing waves, the mystery of what lurked underneath the ominous water instilled enough trepidation within Pete that he wasn't going anywhere near the water. Despite his fear, Pete always had a curiosity for the water. He didn't want to go near it, but he also couldn't take his eyes 
off of it. And the waves crashing in the sand became the background music to Pete's life. But for Pete, it wasn't a relaxing sound. The rhythmic pounding of the surf was more like the sound of a bullet being chambered because Pete was certain the water would be his demise. Fueled by fear, Pete set out to barricade himself in the water using the only thing that was around him, the sand. He stacked and packed the sand as firm and as deep and as high as he could, which made Pete feel safer, but it also prevented him from seeing the ocean. So in the moments when his curiosity got the best of him, he would burrow out diminutive peepholes just to catch a glimpse. Pete never let the curiosity last too long. After stealing a look, he would quickly fill the holes, returning the barricade to optimal safety. For all of Pete's efforts, the water wouldn't stay on the right side of the barricade. Water would drip on his head while he slept in the barricade, and he would step in a puddle when he awoke. At the crack of dawn, every morning, Pete went to work fighting to keep the water away. Patching holes and filling cracks became Pete's morning ritual until the wave came. One morning, Pete was going about his daily routine of fortifying the wall when Pete noticed all the seagulls flying away and the tides recessed excessively far from the shore. A seemingly insignificant detail to Pete that didn't stop him from continuing to gather sand for the morning's patch-up job. The beach then went eerily quiet. The chambering ceased. Pete smiled as, he, as his body relaxed in the calm. Then Pete looked out to the ocean in the serenity disappeared. A lone, rogue wave towered over the ocean, streaking towards the shore. Pete dropped the sand he was carrying and sprinted to get behind the wall. Adrenaline coursed through his veins, sending his muscles into a panic-stricken flight to get to safety. His legs and his arms pumped like pistons to get behind the wall. Jumping into the barricade, Pete pressed his back against the wall. With a deep breath filling his lungs, Safety filled his soul yet again. Pete had kept the water at bay. Then the wall, the one that was supposed to protect him, flattened him. It was no drop of water. It was a deluge. The waves slammed him against the wall, and the wall didn't have a chance for a wall this for a wave this size. Pete was knocked forward in the wash of sand and salt water, spinning and slamming him into the beach repeatedly. Pete fought to get a breath, but he was losing the fight. The water stopped pushing him forward and now began to pull him out to see into the abyss, like a scaly claw pulling you out of your tent at night into the darkness. Pete grasped for anything to hold on to, but the wet sand was no friend in this battle. Pete went further and further into the ocean and farther and farther away from what he knew. He fought, but the water was winning. He gasped for another breath of air, but his lungs only got salt water. Upside down in the full spin cycle of the dark abyss, a thought flashed in his mind. This was bound to happen. I knew I never stood a chance. He accepted this to be his end, and he stopped. No more thrashing, no more reaching, no more grasping for air. Pete closed his eyes and let go. Of course I couldn't keep the water away forever. Who was I to think that I would stop the water from getting to me? This was bound to happen. But as Pete's inner dialogue continued, Pete realized something. He was still here. He was still Alive, Pete rubbed his eyes, trying to remove the salt water, and then he opened his eyes to see that he was no, that he was now floating on top of the water. Somehow, Pete was nowhere near the shore, but he was nowhere near dead. 
Pete was floating. And more than just that, Pete wasn't just able to float. He enjoyed floating in the water. Pete found peace and freedom in the feeling of being on the water. The water wasn't pulling him down. The water was pulling him forward. The water wasn't drowning him. The water was what was keeping him afloat. So too much of modern spirituality attempts to teach us to build structures of safety, keeping us from the great mystery instead of teaching us how to swim in the mystery, just like Pete. For much of modern spirituality, we attempt to keep the water at bay through easily accessible answers for the perplexing relationship of humanity and the divine. At the first glance of a troublesome wave, we shovel on our own barricade a load of sand with a trite phrase. Well, everything happens for a reason. God must have had a plan for that. Well, God needed another angel in heaven. There is no doubt these statements bring comfort to some, but for many of us, we aren't satisfied with an answer to one of the perennial struggles of life that fits on a bumper sticker. We intuitively know something is off kilter with an answer that feels so glib to a question that's so weighty. It's like being served a bowl of cereal at a nice steakhouse. We might like cereal, but it just doesn't belong in a steakhouse. Simplicity has a place, but not when the weight of complexity has flattened me to the ground. Modern spirituality too often teaches us how to build sandcastles because many would rather be protected with quick answers than learn how to wade into the unknown. This is human nature, or at least it's my human nature. My life is complex enough. The last thing I want is to add more complexity. I want answers that reduce the complexity, not double down on it. I want my doctor to tell me exactly what to do to ensure that I will get rid of all health problems for the rest of my life. I don't want to have to think of the process. I just want a nice, neat, and clean product with a three-step plan to keep me disease-free. But a doctor's simple solution to health cannot heal the body of all illness any more than a religious leader's simple solution can make sense of humanity's relationship to the divine. Simple solutions sell, but given enough time, simple solutions will always sell you short. Healthy spirituality is about losing. Losing yourself, losing the, losing the parts of yourself which will bring you shame and pride. Spirituality is about losing control. Or as our friend Barbara Brown Taylor says, losing the illusion that you ever had control. Spirituality is about being lost in something bigger, more expansive, and more mysterious than you can comprehend or contain. Healthy spirituality doesn't shield us from experiencing the mystery. Healthy spirituality encourages, escorts, and sometimes even drags us into the mystery. Spirituality can't start with letting go because how can one give away what one doesn't possess? Spirituality starts with constructing what will eventually be cast aside like training wheels on a child's bicycle. Training wheels are great to get you going, but if you're going to try to ride the Tour de France with training wheels, you are in trouble. What we start with on our spiritual journey has a valuable purpose, but it cannot stay forever. We do begin on the beach of life with the chaotic waters crashing near our feet, and no one has and no one ever will enjoy the chaotic waters creeping up like a gruesome claw reaching into your tent at night. Our answers become the barricade which protect us from the unknown. When the terrifying water is felt in the cancer diagnosis of a 30-year-old father 
or the image of a deceased two-year-old refugee washed ashore after a failed attempt to leave a war-torn country. We want a way to keep the tension at arm's length. When we wonder if this whole God thing, the loving father in the sky narrative is just wish fulfillment created because it helps us sleep at night and face the grace, the great abyss at the edge of life, we look for some ready-made answer to keep the chaotic water away. It's only natural to start somewhere in your spiritual journey, but it's not natural to stay there. The old macabre adage, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, reminds us to be careful for being careless with what we discard, because you might throw something out that's quite valuable. But there's also a sense of carelessness for what we will never allow inside in the first place. In the reverse of the old adage, our attempt to keep the water out has also kept the divine out. Our attempt to barricade ourselves away from the unknown has kept the divine away. We don't want anything bigger and more powerful than us entering into our world, which means we don't want the divine to enter into our world. We don't want to know the unknown, which means we also cannot know the divine. The divine doesn't fit in creations built by his creation. For the divine is bigger, more beautiful, and more inviting. So the divine must invite us out of the structures we built to keep us safe so that we can experience the sacred. Safety and sacred don't often sit well together. The sacred isn't safe. The sacred is good, but not safe. What we often assume to be anti-divine and anti-life might actually be the divine reaching through the cracks and the openings to woo us into the waters. Across many religious traditions, two things are upheld as a source of growth, love and suffering. These are the two invitations we receive to leave the assumed safety of the sand. The more comfortable option is walking through the way of love, like when a trusted sage patiently holds our hand to walk us beyond our comfort zone. Or it's when a transcendent experience of beauty and love is given to us by an unexpected person, making us rethink entrenched attitudes about people like them. In these and many other ways, we enter the mystery like a child on the edge of a pool, jumping into the loving embrace of his father. So a few years back, I opened my front door to go for a run. iPod already playing the soundtrack for the run, which lets you know how long ago it was since it was an iPod. The watch was set, ready to get started, when I saw a brown box of books sitting on my doorstep. Now, I still get a bit of excitement when a book of boxes arrives, usually because in the time between ordering and receiving, I've forgotten what I ordered, including this day. So I pick up the box and turn to take it inside, and while I walk, I open the box. The book on the top is from the Franciscan priest, our friend Richard Rohr, whom I had never heard of before, but someone had mentioned the week before, and without knowing any more about Rohr, I ordered a copy of his book, which had the most reviews on Amazon.com, the one titled The Naked Now. And as I walked back into my kitchen to set the box of books down, I started reading Rohr's book to get a sense of what I would be reading later after my run. And I found his take on spirituality in a way of seeing the divine all around us as mesmerizing. Next thing I knew, I was still sitting at the kitchen table, still wearing my running clothes, with that same playlist from the run, already running, and I'd almost finished reading Rohr's book. 
I couldn't put the book down because in that moment, I was being guided into something new and unknown. A Franciscan priest isn't the usual author for someone with my conservative evangelical background to be reading. But there's a large section of us young evangelical males gravitating to Rohr's work because he lovingly invites us into something more mysterious and expansive than the spirituality which raised us. The way of love guides us into the water through a friendship or the art of a person who speaks to your soul. Now, the way of love is the most comfortable way to be transformed, but the way of love isn't the most frequent way. Most of us are transformed. Most of us enter the water through the painful way, the way of suffering. We leave the shore because our experience doesn't fit in the structure we've created. When a loved one says they don't love us anymore and they hand us the divorce papers, or when it's your kid who doesn't ever get better, or when your boss says that that you are no longer needed by your company, or when the phone call comes in saying, I'm sorry, sir, but there's been an accident. Suffering makes us no longer welcome in the spiritual homes we've built. Because no longer can we follow the house rules. Despite our kicking and screaming, suffering often wins and we're pulled into the water. We don't want to go, but we can't stay. While the invitation to a deeper existence with the divine is in the suffering, usually all we feel in the moment of suffering is pain. No one thinks it's pure joy when you face trials. It's only afterwards that many of us can see the character that's formed in suffering. So I was talking with a guy. Let's just call him uh, Pierce, about his departure from his fundamentalist religious upbringing. And so Pierce described in great detail the mental hang-ups with a few of the religion's doctrines. Pierce, like many, couldn't go for a religion which hurt people or for a God who wanted to send people to an eternal torment in hell regardless of the person's choices or character. And for as eloquently as Pierce could describe why he couldn't rectify the core tenets of faith with his understanding of how God should be, it wasn't a moment of insight or an epiphany that caused Pierce to leave the religion that raised him. The moment Pierce stepped away from his faith was when his wife had an affair and left him. The intellectual issues were substantial and not to be dismissed, but the intellectual conflicts weren't the turning points. And how he told his story, it was suffering. Some might even think the theological and ideological issues were rationalizations to substantiate his departure. The pain of divorce is really what pulled him into the water. Now, we enter the water often when the unwritten but fully expected contract we've created with God gets broken. And no one I know has ever sat down and actually written out a contract between them and the divine. But most of us have a tacit expectation for how God is supposed to act towards you if you act a certain way to God. Usually something like, if we're good enough people, we do the right religious rituals, like saying our prayers and going to church, along with abstaining from evil actions, then God in turn must prevent us from experiencing pain. Unwritten but fully expected contracts with God have existed since the beginning of humanity. There's an old Jewish story of a man named Job who does all the right things to uphold his end of the contract, but his life doesn't go the right way. Job holds up his end of the bargain, but God doesn't. Job loses his vast wealth, his health, and his family. And Job's friends know with great certitude that all of Job's suffering is because Job didn't uphold his side of the contract. 
The friends each take their turn explaining that God always keeps his end of the bargain, so the fault must lie with Job. So the friends tell Job to confess his wrong and die. And you can't blame the friends because at the time of Job, the Jewish religious teaching all supported that if you do good, then good will happen to you. But the friends and this notion that if you are good, then only good will happen to you are wrong. This story evolves the understanding of the divine and adversity. Job's life pulls the entire Jewish tradition out from behind the barricade they had built. Because Job never did anything wrong. Job was just on the bad end of bad circumstances. Do good and good will be done to you is a nice building block for the barricade to get you going in life. But it will not last forever. Eventually a wave will come rolling in and even the best barricade doesn't stand a chance. And so whether it's the way of love or the way of suffering that pulls you into the water, you still end up in a world that's completely different. You can no longer stand because the water's too deep, but you also are unable to go back to the barricade on the sand because on the way into the water, what you've constructed in the first place of your life was deconstructed. The barricade has been destroyed, so there is nothing to go back to. But we also don't know how to keep our head above water. We've seen the flaws of the shore, its limitations in the finitude of the structures, but we've never learned how to swim. We've entered into the mysterious waters where the tools and resources that we've previously used aren't helpful. They have a time and they have a place, but it's not right here and it's not right now. What was useful on the ground, what was useful on the beach isn't useful in the water. But the opposite is also true. What's useful in the water is what was most discouraged on the land. So there's a tired and exhausted donkey. We'll name him Dan. Dan the donkey had been carrying heavy bags of salt through the hot desert all day. Now, Dan the donkey sees a tiny creek off in the distance, so Dan heads that direction. And when Dan the donkey arrives at the creek, getting a drink doesn't satisfy the overheated donkey. So Dan goes all the way into the water, and he's rejuvenated by the cool water. When Dan the donkey comes up out of the water, his bags are no longer heavy. The water had washed away the salt, and now Dan the donkey could walk easily the rest of the way. The weight was gone. The next day, Dan the donkey is on the same journey and is just as hot and exhausted. So Dan the donkey does the exact same thing, sees the creek, goes all the way into the creek. But this time when Dan the donkey comes out of the water, his bags are twice as heavy. Because this time, Dan the donkey's bags don't contain salt, they contain sponges. Same approach, different results because of different context. On the land, the curiosity and the questioning, which were discouraged because they created holes in the barricades, but in the water, the intrigue and the questions and the curiosity are no longer a liability, but the very thing which keeps you afloat. The motion of digging into the sand becomes the motion of swimming. The curiosity and intrigue that caused them To question on the sore now becomes that which keeps you, keeps us, keeps them afloat in the great mystery. On the shore, the curiosity and intrigue are a liability because sandcastles don't do well with people poking holes in them. But in the ocean, the poking and prodding and constant movement develop into the strokes that keep you afloat. 
the people who enter into the water and lose all their faith are often those who have spent all of their time deconstructing but never learned the art of reconstruction. They can pick holes and see flaws, but they never understand how to build something themselves. Swimming incorporates the curiosity into the embrace of the mystery, so faith and doubt become the push and pull of the swim strokes. And that's what I'm talking about. All right, friends. Life is a beach. I hope you learn how to swim. Thanks for listening, friends. We'll do this again later. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.